0: said a couple weeks back that i was going to get my shit together and get the podcast going uh, a little bit more regularly, more consistent a few weeks back. And then I took a two-week break because I just couldn't get my shit together. Uh, long story short, I mean, as everyone knows, the last episode we did was about the coronavirus and how it has impacted the scene and m- the music industry in general. And uh, at the end of Q1, which was the end of March, like it was for many other people, some things just had to take priority over others. But now that things have kind of you know settled down, and in regards to pushing through the end of a quarter, I'm gonna get back to weekly episodes uh, for the time being, just because it's it's easier for my end, and it's and. It's just what I can do right now as far as the amount of, you know, time that goes into everything on the editing side and putting ideas together and things like that. I'm not going to have any guests on for the near future. If a unique situation comes up, like I wanted to have that dumbass from Trapped on just in an attempt to to talk some sense into them, um, I'll, I'll bring someone on. But keeping shows at like a 30 to 40 minute length with just myself is is what's doable for me for right now. Uh, but that being said, since we're all, you know, stuck at home and spring's in full swing and we're heading straight for summer, usually, I mean in the past when warp tour was still going on this was the time when the lineup would be getting announced and we'd be getting waves of bands every week and it would be super exciting heading into another summer. So I thought it'd be fun to look back on what Warped Tour looked like 10 years ago in 2010. And uh, the scene was kind of, at the time, exiting its transitional neon crunk post-hardcore kind of weird Myspace uh, scene wave of the late 2000s and heading like straight into what would be the scene's second peak that it reached from like 2013, 2014, and partially 2015. Uh, the scene looked a lot different a decade ago and definitely a lot more promising. Um, just looking at the lineup 10 years ago, it's crazy to think about these bands and where they were in their career. Um, it I haven't been able to find an actual lineup of what bands played what dates on which stages. I've seen a lot of like from what's left of the archives on the internet of 2010, I've seen a lot of like conflicting dates and things like that, but some bands that just played main stage that year, you had 303, All American Rejects, Alkaline Trio, Andrew WK, Bring Me the Horizon, uh, Dillinger Escape Plan, Dropkick Murphys, Every Time I Die, uh, Motion City Soundtrack, Pennywise, Real Big Fish, Set Your Goals, Set Your Goals is so interesting, that band was gonna be so fucking huge. Uh, some 41, We the Kings, We the Kings was still relevant, but even going down outside of the main stage, the amount of bands that went on to at least make some, somewhat of a name for themselves during that time, it, it's, it's crazy to think about. So outside of the main stage, you had Attack Attack, Breathe Carolina, Confide, Amir, Four Year Strong, Haste the fucking Day. Uh, when I was doing some research earlier today for this episode, I looked up some old videos of Haste of the Day playing in 2010 on Warp Tour, and it was so cool to see that band. Um, you had Hey Monday, Icy Stars, In Fear and Faith, Parkway Drive, Pierce the Veil, Suicide Silence, White Chapel. Um, I mean, the list goes on. It's pretty crazy to see all the different names that played that year. You had Enter Shikari, I wrestled a bear once. It's really, a really a nostalgia trip. Versa Emerge, I believe this was the year there was a show on MTV called World of Janks, and he would just take individuals just completely randomly from around you know the world, and he would just kind of shadow them for a day and kind of go through and unpack what they're experiencing mentally and things like that. It was a super super short lived show. I think the the theme song was a Kid Cudi song, but he did a whole episode with Sierra from Versa, and I believe it was when she was on Warp Tour this summer. But super super interesting to to unpack what that lineup was back then. And two years later, in 2012, Warped Tour released like a full-length documentary film called No Room for Rockstars, and it was about this tour. And they picked just a handful of bands and acts, and they kind of followed them around on the whole tour, and just documented exactly what they were going through at that time. They had uh, Never Shout Never, Suicide Silence, Mike Posner, and Forever Came Calling, who Forever Came Calling weren't even signed at that point. They were literally just a local band trying to sell CDs in the line before every date of the tour. And uh, they eventually got signed to Pure Noise, released two albums, I believe, on Pure Noise, and then I think their third one might have come out independently. Um, They were one of my favorite new wave pop punk bands of, you know, like, pop punk's second golden age, if you could even call it that. But, I mean, just to even look at one band on this tour, say Never Shout Never and unpack exactly where Chris was at that time. It is crazy to think about where he was poised to be and what he was, you know, the foundation and the stage that he was thrusted into after all of his MySpace success. Um, Just the Never Shout Never footage of the show kind of documents his life during that time and how Everything was just kind of sucked from, from him after the tour was over. I've met Chris, and a lot of people like Chris over the years. And you can tell in his demeanor, especially in the beginning interviews, it's a fake type of innocence. And as soon as shit starts going south for people with that mentality, they fall apart and just say, fuck it. He he sprains his ankle at some point in the tour, not even maybe like midway through. And by the end of the film, he is over absolutely everything and just wants to go home. Um, it's crazy to think about how big Never Shout Never was supposed to be. They were a major label band. Nobody remembers that at all. The amount of of hype that he built off of his MySpace page is absolutely ridiculous. And to think about, you know, his is at least from what I know of his backstory. <clears throat> I, this might not be accurate at all, but this is what he would, would tell people, and I think I read it in an AP interview years and years and years ago, but he was like supposedly this tennis prodigy, and he broke his ankle, or he, he broke something, and he was in the hospital, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't looking like tennis was going to pan out for him, um, and his uncle brought him a, a guitar, and that's how he started playing music, but the, the amount of momentum and hype that, Christopher Drew built off the MySpace years from, um, the Yippie EP, I think there was some sort of, like, demo shmemo thing, I think it was called, um, but you had songs like Big, Shitty, Big City Dreams, and... There's a couple other that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but he built so much momentum off of this kind of, like, you know, peace and love, and he always had a fucking, like, raccoon tail, and he had great hair. I know I always talk about hair, but that kid had the best fucking hair. Um, and he, he owned his entire look all the way, all the way up until he started getting fame, and then he was completely over it, he was completely over it, and it's, it was wild to watch at the time, and now to think about how we haven't heard from him in years, it's like, holy shit, like, remember that Never Shot never actually happened, um, but, I I don't have first week sales for him, but in 2010, in January of that year, he had released his first album. It actually debuted at number 24 on on the top 200. And then he released his second full length, Harmony, later that year, that same year. I mean, he was literally on like a hip hop, like hip hop's current release schedule. You put out like two albums a year. Um, I know he only had like eight or so songs on every quote-unquote album, and the songs were super, super short, but the amount of content that he was pumping out is is super interesting to look at now, considering everyone's kind of release schedules, but um, that second album also debuted uh, even higher than the first one at number 24, and then pretty much after that, it all fell apart. I mean, he was, he released an album called Indigo, and it just, He just got way, way, way too weird for any of his fan base from the early days to latch on to anything that he was doing uh, after that second Never Shout Never album. And he, like, attempted to return to form at, like, a couple different points. Um, I think he released an album called Sunflower. But other than that, he, he, he really just let it go to his head a little bit too much and he didn't want any of what he thought he wanted and it all just fell apart from there but in 2015 Warner did attempt to make never Shout never happen again like say what you want about major labels but there was an attempt to to really still make him happen even after it had all fallen apart but um I have a story from the 2015 APMAs that I'll uh I'll tell on on some episode down the line but um Christopher Drew an incredible story and whoever writes the book on the scene, he's going to take a, he's going to take quite a few pages out of the the MySpace era and, and the downfall of Never Shout Never is uh, super, super interesting to unpack. But um, the movie, the film also talks about Suicide Silence, who played the whole tour that year. And, it, and it's so unfortunate to to think about this band and only be able to kind of remember how much their name has been dragged through the mud over the last couple of years. I mean, they released that complete bullshit self-titled album. The songs were absolute ass. Ross Ross Robinson produced it. And I mean, it it made a laughing stock of Suicide Silence. They literally like they took the Deathcore scratched out logo that they had and they literally just cleaned it up to make it look like more legible and more marketable and shit like that. And the songs were just complete ass like they're not actually songs they sound terrible absolutely terrible there's no structure to them eddie is a horrible 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 fucking front man and he should have never 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 gotten behind the wheel of suicide silence and it's super super disappointing to look back on their legacy and how much it's been ruined because of him and where the band has decided to take things because at, at this time in 2010, they were on the No Time to Bleed cycle and Mitch Lucker was just starting to become a poster boy for what, you know, that Hot Topic wave that was literally at that point falling apart all around them because Metalcore was taking over. Rise Records had become the coolest label in the business and Deathcore bands were either going Metalcore or they were just breaking up and falling apart. You kind of saw that with Miss May I, like that first Miss May I record, Apologies Are For The Week, that's Hot Topic Deathcore to a T. But by the time they got to their second album, it's literally just modern metalcore. There's, they left all of the deathcore elements out of Out of what they continued with, Um, but Suicide Silence doubled down and they got heavier. I mean, I love the cleansing. That's one of my favorite deathcore records of all time. The snare on that record is one of my favorite snares of all time. There is so much fucking pop in that; it's absolutely ridiculous. But um, it, it was so interesting to look, and I even I remember thinking about it at the time because Suicide Silence looked like Lamb of God, but they had like Ollie Sykes as their front man. Like they had this super marketable poster boy that could carry them as far as image goes. You know, like they weren't, Mitch didn't didn't have a massive beard and he wasn't wearing camo cargo shorts and he didn't have super long hair. He kind of looked like Ollie Sykes. Uh, he had tattoos. He was just covered in them. Super skinny, lanky dude. Um, and he, he was the poster boy that really, gave other fans that maybe weren't necessarily into Deathcore as a whole something to latch onto. And that's super important. And no one wants to recognize that, but Image is literally half your battle as a band. And he gave Suicide Silence what so many Deathcore bands didn't have during that hot topic wave. But um it's really bittersweet to see the footage of him with his daughter Kennedy. Cause we didn't really have another the scene didn't have another death that was on the same level as Mitch's. It was, it was just super unique given where Suicide Silence were in their career at that time because you can kind of say Kyle Pavone from We Came As Romans. That was obviously very large and incredibly significant, but We Came As Romans were at a very different point in their career than Suicide Silence. Suicide Silence in 2010, even before they had released You Only Live Once, but once they had released that album a couple years later the metal scene was taking them seriously they had gotten cosigns from lamb of god they had gotten cosigns from bands that existed outside of not only deathcore but the scene as a whole and it, it it was really looking like suicide silence was gonna find a way to break out in a way that we hadn't really seen a heavy band do from the scene especially one that heavy Um, but Mitch had a vision for that band and they were going in a lot of different directions and you can kind of see where the band was trying to go on that bullshit self-titled album where Mitch wanted to take it, they just failed completely. Like they they bastardized his image for that band, and it, it was such a, such a fucking shame to see. Because if you go back and listen to those Suicide Silence records with Mitch, all three of them, they're great, great fucking records. Even that first one. I mean, there's obviously there's it's it's a very run of the mill deathcore record, but it it's to a T, Hot Topic deathcore at its finest, and it's it's such a shame that we lost him at such a young age. But this this documentary and the footage that you get to see of Mitch is is it's just super insightful and, and I'm glad that they got this documented in some way because we don't really have much else um, besides DVDs from Suicide Silence themselves. But as far as outside sources, this is this is kind of the biggest one that I'm aware of. But I do I highly recommend it if if even if you're not a fan of deathcore or just a fan of the scene. Um, it's it's great historical docu- documentation what they did with uh, Suicide Silence on here, but other than that, they they talked to Mike Posner, they followed him around because he was the big superstar at the time on Warp Tour, and Warp Tour is known for for taking out acts that aren't necessarily part of the scene or, or even obviously necessarily part of the scene. They um they've had everyone from Eminem, Limp Bizkit, Kid Rock. Fucking, you know the the Black Eyed Peas. They've had so many artists play the play the tour over the years, but I think they definitely got into after the after emo's peak in the mid 2000s with My Ken and Fall Out Boy and Panic. They got a name for themselves, and Warp Tour's brand was built around only emos go here, and uh, it's not not true at all. They they definitely had that. That was definitely the the names that carried that tour and uh, what they became known for, but they definitely definitely incorporated a lot of other genres throughout the years and Mike Posner was definitely one of them he had the song cooler than me take off and and it's so funny because he's in there and he, he he doesn't know anyone who's on the tour he's never heard of any of those bands before he's talking about how he he's pulling double duty on a lot of the dates throughout the tour too he's he's gonna go play a set during the day and then he's gonna go play at a club that night in whatever city they're at which it's Crazy, but he was making so much money that summer, but he literally says, he's like, I've already sold more records than 95% of the bands on this tour have or ever will. And I thought that was fucking hilarious. He just, he didn't care. And he, I mean, he was a pop star poised to be on top of the world and take it over. But um, as we saw with him, it all fell apart too. But uh, he has gotten a Grammy nomination since uh, for his song, I Took a Pill in Ibiza. And I believe he was trying to like, walk across the country last year. I could be totally fucking this up, but I I think this is right. He tried to walk across the country last year and he got bit by some poisonous steak and he got hospitalized for it. And it was like some serious thing, but he recovered from it and he's okay. But I remember that story popping up last year and I was like, Holy shit! Remember Mike Posner when he played Warp Tour, and then uh, all the all the metalcore covers of, of of Cooler Than Me all came rushing back, which was hilarious because they were so fucking bad. Uh, all the pure volume metalcore covers of of 2010, 2011, 2012. Those were those were maybe some parts of the scene that should remain buried but uh the other band that they followed was a band called forever came calling which i talked about earlier they were selling cds um in the line at the different dates and they end up not making enough money to make it to other dates and they're you know stealing from gas stations and then they kind of have just a bit of a breakdown and it all gets a little too much for them and but they do end up getting to play a date and they eventually got signed by pure noise records i think because of that documentary so i definitely recommend going to check out those those first two forever came calling albums great modern pop punk band but also there wasn't an insane amount of drama on the 2010 Warped Tour, as there had been in past years, you know, you had Fat Mike and NoFX versus Spencer Chamberlain and Aaron Gillespie Under Oath, um, and just drama between old heads and new heads and, and shit like that, but there was, there was a bit of a drama between the Of Mice and Men camp and Austin Carlisle, and, Uh, At the time, their new vocalist, Jerry Roosh, and a lot of people don't remember this at all, but it it did happen because Austin Carlyle had gotten basically let go of Of Mice and Men because at that time, he had to get surgery done, like a very significant surgery, and it was gonna take Of Mice and Men off the touring schedule for for a good amount of time. And they obviously didn't want to. They were touring on their, their debut full length, and shit was really picking up for them. Um the, the album was definitely a success at that point and they were gaining new fans left and right and when when you have that kind of momentum and you have an opportunity to do work tour, you fucking take it. Um because that's gonna catapult your band. Absolutely. And so they basically let Austin go and they got Jerry Roosh, who was the uh not even the original vocalist from Sky Eats Airplane, but at the time uh, I believe he had just left right before this, and he was kind of looking for one. But Sky's airplane was like the, the the forefathers to like a different breed of electronic metalcore than what the scene had had seen at that point. And you know they had garnered a little bit of a fan base. So of my Men got Jerry, and at this point Jerry was kind of poised to be a poster boy a little bit for the scene. Like he wasn't a star yet. But with, with this getting updrafted to Of um, Mice and Men, you know, it's the follow up project to Attack Attack after Austin Carlyle got kicked out. And there's so much drama and everything's built in. And they dropped the record and there was an Attack Attack diss track, 7,000 Miles for What? And then they had a single takeoff, Second in C Ring, which is about Austin Carlyle's mom. And now Austin Carlyle's out of the band. So uh, they're like, is, is there beef there? We, we didn't really know what to think about the situation, but we were just enthralled by it. And so on the, the Bonner Springs date, August 2nd, 2010, Jerry has been on the tour fronting uh, of Mice and Men for the whole thing and he forgets the lyrics. I don't know if this was accidentally or intentionally because this wasn't the first date he had done vocals for them and he had gotten them right in the past. So I don't know if he was, you know, maybe a little intoxicated and just forgot or just said fuck it, whatever. But Second and Sebring, like I said, is about Austin Carlyle's mom who passed away and Jerry forgets the lyrics. And as he's forgetting the lyrics, while the band is playing the rest of the song, he goes, this song goes out to Austin Carlyle. I don't fucking like you, Austin Carlyle. Austin Carlyle is a motherfucking pussy. And this video is still on YouTube. It turns 10 on August 2nd this year. And this was so, like, this was such a big fucking deal at the time. And YouTube, obviously, in no way what it was then as it is today, or else this video would have been so much bigger. It literally only has, like, 130,000 views or a little bit over that, I think. But it is such a moment because nobody remembers that Austin Carlyle didn't front of Mice and Men at one point before Aaron Pauley took over. Um, But... That's that's one thing I love about the Punk Goes Pop series is because they serve as like these documentational points in band's careers where they were off cycle and they just went in to record this one song and put it on there because Attack Attack recorded their cover of I Kissed a Girl with the replacement God, I cannot remember what this kid's name is off the top of my head, but there was, they had a vocalist in between Austin Carlyle and Caleb Shomo, and I cannot remember what his fucking name is, but he recorded the vocals, the screaming vocals, on their I Kissed a Girl cover, and he is also the screamer in the Stick Stickly video. Of Mice and Men on Punk Goes Pop Five covered Blame It, and it is the only song they recorded with Jerry on vocals, and it is also one of the best punk goes pop covers of all time and definitely top 10 scene metalcore covers of all time for sure but this is such an interesting point i mean eventually jerry got kicked out because he was just being a dick and austin was became well enough to tour again and wasn't gonna you know hinder the band from from touring at all, or, or or any opportunities like that, for for the for that time being, and they brought him back. But that was that was such a such a fucking time because we don't no one remembers that Jerry was in of Mice and Men and uh, all the drama that ensued after it on that on that summer. But um, the last thing I really want to talk about is Kevin Lyman and how at this time. And even a little bit before this and, and after it, you know, for a couple more years, he really was seen as, as kind of like the father of a lot of these bands and, and the go-to guy when, you know, bands needed advice or, or, you know, a help up. He understood the way the music industry works and what it took to make bands take off. And he was there to, to help bands out, you know, like you watch any sort of footage of Kevin from back in the day. He's like, Hey, how are you doing? Can I get you some, something to eat? You want, you want some food? Like we're grilling, we got food everywhere. You need water. Like, what do you, what do you need? How can I help you? And you could, you're a complete stranger to him. You know, like he, he he doesn't owe you anything you're on his tour that that should be enough but he didn't care you know he was he was out there to help these bands and help everyone who was on the tour and it was it was really like a family environment and the conversation even before the sentiment about Kevin Lyman and Warped Tour started to change around 2015 you still had people that were trying to voice their opinion on why warp Tours shouldn't exist. And for all these different things that I'm not going to get into because it would make this a two-hour-long episode, but bottom line is that Kevin Lyman went from a hero to a villain in about three years, and it's super, super unfortunate. I n- Like, there's not a... a, 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 a poisonous bone in that dude's body like he he did all of this to help all these bands and it definitely made a few mistakes as anyone would you know and, he, and he's admitted to that a lot of it but Lyman is a great businessman and he gave our world a platform to grow and thrive and Warped Tour died because of a lot of different reasons but one of them was that there was there was this sentiment shift among ba- among newer bands that were coming up, and a lot of emo's fourth wave. And he he talked about that in an interview last year. And I uh, I screenshotted some of what he said, and I put up my own take about it on on Twitter. And and fourth wave emo definitely awoken and. and canceled the hell out of me. But I, I talk about things in a business way. I'm not speaking on morality. I'm not speaking on what's right and wrong. I'm speaking about how to make your band bigger. And that that's what Warp Tour did. If you did Warp Tour right, it was there to help your band. If you were a complete fucking shithead, then you shouldn't have been out there and your band shouldn't go fucking anywhere. But th- he said in this interview, the bands that I thought would have been fantastic for, for this were bands like Balance and Composure, La Dispute, Touche More. I love those bands. I think they're great musical bands, but their attitudes of their little community, they don't want to break outside of that little community. Modern Baseball, I think, could have been one of the most massive bands out there, but they got caught up in their own bullshit. No one is too precious to break out of your own shell, and I felt they were. And I'd watch their careers and every year I'd send offers and they'd be like, oh, we don't want to tour with those bands. We don't want to be a Warped-esque band. And I took screenshots of that and I quoted it. I said, Kevin Lyman did an interview about Warped and the awful mentality of new wave emo bands. This is why it's so refreshing to see a band like Knocked Loose support A Day to Remember and then take out See You Space Cowboy. Bands can shoot themselves in the foot all they want, but fuck elitism, and I stand by that, like, I, that's literally everything I preach on this show, it's, you know, Knocked Loose isn't afraid to go out with bands like Motionless and White and A Day to Remember and then take out a dope new band like CU Space Cowboy and, and exist inside the hardcore scene when they're not touring with those bigger bands and making their band bigger. You know, there, there's, there's a different conception about how you treat your band. Your band is a business and your band should want to get bigger. That's all I'm talking about though, is from the business side, of things Warp Tour was fantastic for your band and I think there was ways to use Warp Tour to do good like no one ever wants to point about all the food drives and all the all the women that were behind Warp Tour that made the tour happen every single year and I think all of that gets shoved under the rug way too much were there bad things that happened on Warp Tour absolutely and there should have been more conversations and better ways that we dealt with all of that but to say that Kevin Lyman is a villain you know looking back on the history of warp tour and kind of how it ended and this unfortunate like gray cloud around it i think that is complete bullshit and at, just looking back on even just the small amount of time that i put into preparing this episode and like going back and looking at these bands and fuck we're all locked in the fucking house at this point anyways but just remembering like going to warp tour for the first time and seeing enter shikari and seeing the wonder years and seeing bring me from like two football fields away this this tour gave a launch pad for our world and literally like if it wasn't for warp tour we wouldn't have anything of what we have now it wouldn't exist and at If that's a hard pill to swallow for you and you won't admit it, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. There's something that needs to be said about what Lyman did for the scene and, you know, how he shouldn't be looked back on as the villain of it all because he did so much good for so many people, but... Tour 2010 was fun as hell, and it's so crazy to look back on all of those bands from the lineup before, and even just take out, like, one or two, like, think about where Ener Shikari was at that point in time in their career in 2010, and just to see all those names in one ad mat, you know, the beginning of IC Stars, which we literally learned over the weekend that Austin Carlyle almost joined IC Stars after uh, he got kicked out of Attack Attack, which is crazy to think about if he joins icy stars we don't get of mice and men and of mice and men doesn't become one of the biggest bands at the scene at one point and uh that affects a lot like the butterfly effect of of all of that is is pretty crazy to think about but if you went to warp tour 2010 send me an email like i'd, lo- I'd love to hear about what bands you saw and in 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 general like moving forward for the show like send me what you want to hear me talk about i'm I'm looking for ideas if, if you want me to go back to doing news stories of, of everything that happens in the scene throughout the week, which there's less and less of, but if that's what, you know, if that's what you all want to hear me talk about, then I'll figure out how to make that happen, or if you want more nostalgic deep dives or unpacking certain bands' careers, I'll take anything you all want to throw at me, but um, just send anything you'd like to scene at gmail.com and I'll take a look and figure out what we'll do for next week. But until then, thank you so much for listening.